We face uh, many challenges uh, dealing with the cross. The first is familiarity, uh, which can breed contempt, we've heard, or even boredom. We've read the book, saw the movie, bought the t-shirt. We hear this story many times a year, usually during communion or at least once a year at, at Easter, and in its familiarity, uh, it can lose its unique glory. Another challenge is that of time. Uh, we, we are some 2,000 years removed from the event, and it fades in our collective conscience, collective memories which brings yet another challenge, that of ignorance. I don't mean that negative. I simply mean that none of us have ever seen someone crucified. Most of us have never witnessed a death, let alone an execution. We have no experience with crucifixion. The Jews, well, they knew it well. It's estimated that 30,000 of them were crucified by the time Jesus was. They had seen crosses line their roads after revolts. For them, crosses were everywhere. Well, us too, but not in the same way. Which leads to another significant challenge, that of glorification. What do I mean? Well, crosses are, again, everywhere for us, but in a different way. They adorn our churches. We wear them as jewelry. Some bear in their bodies the marks of the Lord Jesus in tattoo form. We're buried beneath them. I preach under one. You see them everywhere you look. I've said this before, you don't uh, see many wearing an electric chair or a hangman's noose as jewelry. The cross was an instrument of unimaginable horror and shame in execution. So why then glory in the cross? There is something different about it, I suppose, that it's right to glory in it. I would even call it biblical. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6, may it never be that I would boast, interesting word, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's nothing more important than the cross. Why? Well, that leads to the final challenge, that of focus. We generally focus on the results of the cross, uh, what the cross of Jesus did for me, and and, and, uh, that's also proper and biblical. Peter, for example, wrote, he himself bore in our, uh, excuse me, uh, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, here's the purpose clause, we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 said, for the word of the across this foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Yes, there is much to rejoice in, glory in, celebrate in the cross of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion is the climax of redemptive history. God's redeeming work culminated in the cross where Jesus bore the sins of the world. Incredibly, incredibly, think of this, it was the plan of God before the foundation of the world. And then later, John speaks of a heavenly scene in which he sees in the middle of the throne a lamb standing as it had been slain. It seems that we will always glory in the cross. And yet, one author wrote, 
The crucifixion of Christ is also the vilest expression of evil in human history. It displays the utter depth of hum- humanity's depravity. He, he summarizes, the death of Jesus Christ was therefore the supreme revelation of the gracious love of God while also being the ultimate expression of the sinfulness of man. Do you see? We glory in the cross, and we should. It is the greatest symbol of God's glorious and gracious love toward us. I suppose that's why we wear it in jewelry and adorn our buildings with it. But the ignominy, the brutality, the shame of the cross should also remind us of the depth of our sin. What do we do with those two conflicting emotions? The Scripture focuses on both aspects of the cross, both the shame and the glory of the cross. In the gospel accounts, John focuses primarily on God's redemptive love and and grace, Matthew on man's wickedness. Mark seems to focus uh, on the shame and humiliation of the cross. So this week, in our continuing study of Mark's gospel, we arrive at the crucifixion. I I plan to cover it this week and, and next. Today, we will focus on the shameful nature of the death of Christ on a cross. And I want God, through His ever-present and powerful Spirit, to move us again by this truth. As I told you last week, we are on holy ground. I believe there is power in this story. Look at it with me. Mark chapter um, 15, verse 16 says this. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in in purple, and and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling, bowing before him. They had mocked him. They took the... After they had mocked him, they they took the purple robe off him, put on his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. I'm going to treat uh, the text in four parts around the four 
groups of people who mock, insult, revile, and, and crucify our Lord. Again, we see in the text this morning the shame of the cross. There is, there is however, great irony in the mockery. You see, most of it was actually true. Jesus was the king of the Jews. He is the temple to be raised in three days. He is the Christ, the Savior of men, the Son of God. Incredible irony. Our points uh, will go like this. First, we'll see the evil treatment by the Roman soldiers culminating in the cross. Just to let you know, we're going to spend most of our time there. Uh, Then we'll see the abuse of the passing crowd, the mocking of the Sanhedrin, and finally, we'll finish with the insults of the robbers. Last words we read last week were, after having scourged, after having Jesus scourged, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. He was handed over to the Roman cohort. A cohort consisted of about 600 men. Here we read the whole Roman cohort was gathered around Jesus, whether that means all 600 or all of those who were present at the praetorium, perhaps those who were on duty, don't really know. What we do know is that a lot of the Roman soldiers were involved in this abuse of our Christ. The praetorium, you'll remember, was the residence of the Roman governor, meaning the home of Pilate, very likely Herod's palace, could perhaps be in the Antonia Fortress right next to the temple. These Roman soldiers most likely were not uh, Romans, but rather soldiers conscripted from conquered nations. They were not, however, Jews. Rome had an agreement not to use Jewish men in their army. Typically, garrisoned soldiers came from a neighboring country so that they would be familiar with the culture and and language. Very likely, it is suggested that these guys were Syrians who knew Aramaic, the common language of the Jewish nation. And by the way, they also hated the Jews. Not, Not only that, given the fact that this was a political hotspot, remember, a troubled Uh, the troubled nature of Judea, these soldiers were likely legionnaires, top soldiers in the Roman army. It was to these soldiers Pilate gave Jesus to be crucified. They probably didn't know much about Jesus, and what they knew, frankly, they didn't care. To them, he was nothing more than a conquered, oppressed, subjugated, despised Jew. And worse, he was a Galilean the lowest of the low. It was obvious they knew the charges leveled against him by their actions, probably were present at the Roman trial. They knew Jesus was being put to death uh, because of his claim to be a king. Remember, by this time, Jesus had been kept up all night, beaten, slapped, spat upon by the Sanhedrin. He'd been scourged by two Roman soldiers, probably while the others watched. The scourging left his flesh in ribbons, cut deeply, bleeding profusely, probably with bones and organs exposed. Jesus stood before them, quivering in pain. Now, do not get the idea, because he was God, he was somehow immune to pain. He wasn't. He stood before them in excruciating pain, yet strangely silent. Well, the soldiers would not have been impressed. (laughs) Beaten, bleeding, No subjects standing by the side of this king. No soldiers willing to fight for him, silent. They may have even thought him stupid. He becomes the butt of their jokes. And we remember the question from last week. What kind of king 
is this? He didn't look much like a king. This peasant looked rather poor, weak, not very majestic, not kingly. To them, nothing but a joke, someone to make fun of. This, this is the king of the Jews. They decide to play along with the charade. They dress him up like a king. They made sport of Jesus, this king of the universe. First, they strip him naked, put a scarlet robe on him. The word actually speaks of a soldier's tunic, short and red in color. Mark tells us it's purple, supplying what the soldiers were trying to suggest, the color of royalty. All the while, Jesus remains silent, which to these soldiers was nothing more than a sign of weakness. Uh, Every king needs a crown. Caesar, a true king, wore a laurel wreath. You could see see that on the coins which bore his inscription. So they weave together a a crown of thorns. Thorns grow abundantly in Palestine in many varieties, some with two-inch thorns. They press it down with force, and the blood began to flow from his already beaten head. To complete the royal royal ensemble, every king needs a royal Scepter, Matthew tells us they gave him a reed, placed it in his right hand, which is a a symbol of authority, but they weren't finished with the charade. Hail Caesar was the cry that they gave to their king, so they knelt before Jesus mocking, hail king of the Jews. I want you to get that picture in your mind. Looks more like a king now, doesn't he? Soldiers apparently were not impressed because after kneeling, they spat on him. They took the reed, began to beat him on the head, the head already bearing the crown of thorns, driving the thorns deeper into his brow, and Jesus remains silent. Should we supply groans and cries of anguish? Probably. Cowering as they beat him again and again, likely. But there was no pleading, no threatening, no reviling, no cursing, rather... Later, he will say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. King of the universe. But to them, he was nothing but a joke, mockery of a king. They took the tunic off, gave his clothes back, led him away to be crucified. Usually, it was a quaternion, that is, a contingency of four soldiers who took care of the deed Part of the process required the condemned to carry his own cross to the site of crucifixion, whether he carried the whole cross or just the cross piece, we don't really know. Often the condemned wore a placard uh, around his neck with the charges listed. Jesus, weak from lack of sleep, repeated beatings and scourging, was only able to carry his cross from the praetorium to the edge of the city, perhaps the city gate. As they were going out, he lacked the strength to go any further. Coming into the city at that time was a man named Simon of Cyrene. A lot of legend has arisen around this man through the years. What we know is that he was likely a Jew from Cyrene, a city in North Africa where there was known to be a large Jewish population. He was probably one of the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who made their way to the Feast of Passover. Mark tells us, interestingly, he was also the father of Rufus and Alexander. That seems a superfluous piece of information, unless, as it is supposed, Rufus and Alexander were well known by the church. 
Attempts have been made to identify them. For example, when Paul wrote his letter to Rome, he mentions a Rufus. Same guy, I don't know that we can identify them. But obviously, I think they meant something to the church. It is possible, the legend which says Simon became a Christian and took Christianity back to his family and to Cyrene, it's, it's possible that it's true, don't know. Simon was compelled to carry the cross to the site of crucifixion. We are told that they came to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The Latin word for skull is Calvaria, from which we get our word Calvary. Think of that when you sing that, the skull. Attempts have been made to identify the site, the two most popular being the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which goes all the way back to the 4th century um, A.D., a Catholic site, and then, of course, uh, there's Gordon's Golgotha because we must have a corresponding Protestant site. Here's an interesting note. Nowhere does it say it was on a hill far away. It was, however, an emblem of suffering and shame. While we cannot be sure where it was, we know crucifixion, in addition to being used for execution, was also used to set an example for the people and to instill fear. So crucifixion sites were usually very visible where people could see. We also know a Jewish law, which the Romans observed, stated executions must be held outside the city gate. With that in mind, listen to, Rome, or excuse me, to Hebrews chapter 13. For the bodies of, the, of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood." suffered outside the camp, or outside the gate. He was, after all, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. When they arrived at Golgotha, they gave him wine mixed with myrrh to drink. Lots of discussion about that as well. Who gave it to him? Why did they give it to him? Some suggest it was the women. You see that displayed in movies who gave Jesus the drink intended to be a mild narcotic. The idea was to dull the senses to the excruciating pain of uh, crucifixion. And so it is suggested Jesus, when he tasted it, spit it out. He wanted his senses fully intact to carry the weight of the world and the world's sin on his shoulders. Maybe, but nowhere does it say that that the women gave him the drink. Here it seems clear it was the soldiers who did so. If it served as a mild narcotic, does this mean that they were suddenly softened a a bit, feeling sorry for Jesus? I don't think so. More likely, they mixed the wine with myrrh to make it bitter. It was intended to be yet another sick joke another piece of mockery. Here, we'll give you something to drink, and it was so bitter, Jesus had to spit it out, and they had another cheap laugh at the expense of this joke of a king, this king of the universe. It brings us to the horror of the cross itself. Again, the The cross presents us with challenges of familiarity and and time and ignorance and focus, but we must, for a moment, enter into the brutality and shame of the cross. It was unspeakably painful and degrading. Crucifixion um, had actually been invented by the Persians who wanted to lift the body above the earth so as not to contaminate the earth. The Romans borrowed the cross um, from the Persians, seeing it as the most painful death 
heinous death imaginable. You see, Romans saw death as an escape, so they wanted to inflict as much pain as they could before you escaped. The cross was so offensive to Romans, they refused to allow their citizens to be crucified no matter what crime had been committed. It was typically reserved for the worst criminals, the lowest of the low, the lowest classes of people. Cicero, who lived from 106 to 43 B.C., said of crucifixion, it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from the Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. You've never seen one you wouldn't want to. Add to that Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. The Jews applied this to crucifixion and saw the victims of the cross as accursed by God. And indeed, Jesus was. He became a curse for us. Again, while we are accustomed to hearing about crucifixion, few know the horror and shame associated with it. First, they would strip the condemned. We know they did this to Jesus because in a moment they gambled for his clothing. They would then lay the victim down on the cross and either lash his arms and legs to the beams or they would nail him to the cross. We know, not from the crucifixion accounts uh, in the Gospels, but from other passages that they nailed Jesus to the cross, passages like John 20 after the resurrection where Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails, I will not believe. Or the, or the words of Peter, first message on the day of Pentecost, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Most of you understand, anatomically, I guess, that they did not place the hands, uh, the nails in his hands. The structure of the hands would not support the weight. They, they, they would typically place the nail through the, through the wrists. They nailed his feet to the cross with a single nail, probably through the Achilles tendon. The pain would have been unbearable. Okay, so most of you know some of this. I don't want it to sound like a medical report, but we are talking about our Christ. Once nailed to the cross, they raised it up, placed it in a hole. The weight of the cross and Christ would have settled in the hole with bone-jarring impact. We, we usually have a picture in mind of a, of a very high cross. Roman soldiers having to use a ladder to get up there, but typically the cross uh, would lift the victim no more than a foot or so off the ground. But the words of Jesus come to mind. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Death usually with crucifixion comes slowly. Sometimes they would last up to three days. Victims of crucifixion usually died by either heart failure or asphyxiation. You see, by, by hanging, uh, hanging by your arms made it almost impossible to breathe, especially to exhale. So in order to breathe, you had to pull yourself up by your arms or push yourself up with your legs, those that had been impaled by a nail. Either way, you would slide up the cross to exhale and gulp in air, 
Remember, Jesus was naked, his back bare, his flesh in ribbons from the scourging, sliding up the rough wood just to take a breath. And after hours, perhaps days for most victims, no food or water, muscles would cramp, they would no, muscle, uh, they would no longer respond, and you would suffocate. If the Romans wanted to hasten death, they would break the legs of the victims right beneath the knees, making it impossible to push himself up. Later, they will do that to the robbers, but they will find Jesus already dead. Mark does not tell us any of this because his readers knew well what crucifixion was. Mark hardly mentions it. Four words in the English, three in the Greek at the beginning of verse 24, and they crucified him. That's it. They crucified him. And having crucified him, they gambled for his clothing. And in final insult, insult as they kept watch over him, they divided up the loot. It was the third hour, about nine in the morning. To the top of the cross, Pilate gave the instructions that the charge against him be displayed, which simply read, the king of the Jews. John tells us it was written in Greek and Hebrew and Latin for everyone to read. The Jewish leadership protested. They said, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate, tired of the Sanhedrin by now, said, what I have written, I have written. Which brings us, remember, to our second point much more quickly, the abuse of the crowds. You see, I told you that there was not only the pain of crucifixion, there was also the shame in it. He, he hung naked, broken, and bleeding for all to see, and they walked by hurling abuse at him. More literally, they were blaspheming, and that's the word. The word can be translated either blaspheme or abuse. In this case, it was both. Wagging their heads. Look at what they said, Ha! You are going to, uh, come, uh, going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Do you see the irony? They did not realize two very important things. First, the temple was being destroyed, and he would raise it up in three days. And second, it was precisely because he stayed on the cross that he didn't save himself that he would save others in the future who would believe. Now, we see the Sanhedrin was not done with their mocking as well. In the same way, the chief priests also with the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, he saved others. Stop right there. He saved others. They acknowledged always that he saved others. He healed them, delivered them from demons, fed them, raised them from the dead. They never questioned his miracles. They were, in fact, undeniable. They were just too blind to see uh, why he performed the miracles, proof that he was indeed the Messiah. He, he saved others. He cannot save himself. The fact is, Jesus could have saved himself, but not if he was to save others. He came, to save, he, came, he, uh, he came not to save himself, but to give his life a ransom for many. This, let this Christ, this king of Israel, doesn't look much like a king, does he? Hanging there on a cross, there is irony there because, you see, he was the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. You see what they just said? They were seeing the very thing they needed to see to believe. Without believing that, there is no hope. 
It brings us to the last group. Verse 27 says, two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on his left, one on his right. Last week I told you that the word robber is also the word for insurrectionist. Know this, robbery was not a capital offense. Insurrection, however, was. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. It's very possible that these two were two of his men, fellow insurrectionists, and Jesus, as I suggested last week, perhaps died on the cross, prepared for Barabbas. How appropriate, Jesus dying in another's place. We cannot help but think of Isaiah 53. He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Here's my question. The two or all of us? Verse 32 says, even the robbers crucified with him were insulting him. Luke tells us specifically what they said. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. They, 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 they were not really interested in whether or not Jesus was the Christ. They were only interested in saving their own skin. Yes, Luke also tells us that at some point, one of the men crucified with Jesus had a change of heart. Mark, however, does not record it. You see, at this point, he is only focusing on the shame of the cross and the sinfulness of humanity. Four groups of people, Roman soldiers, the passing crowd, the Sanhedrin, that's religious people, and even the insurrectionists, all mocked, all insulted, all hurled abuse at Jesus. Which brings us to our conclusion. Last week, I concluded by asking you, what kind of king is that? I ask you the same question today. What kind of king is Jesus? This week, I hope that you are offended by the question. Because while everyone present in Mark's account is hurling abuse at Jesus, he is our Savior. He is the king of the universe. He is our king. And while, we, while they did not believe he was the Christ, the Son of God, because he did not come down from the cross, we believe that he was the Christ, the King, precisely because he stayed on the cross. Because he stayed on the cross. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we sing. I'm going to encourage you to sing with knowledge, with hope, with everything that you have, contrary to what everyone thought and said that day, in fact, contrary to what most think today, Jesus is, in fact, the king. He is my king. We will not hurl abuse. We will lift praise. Father, thank you. Those those words seem so inadequate. But thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us. We call you master. We call you king. We call you Lord. We call you savior. And we acknowledge that by staying on the cross, you purchased our redemption at great cost to yourself. Unimaginable cost. And we've just talked about the physical suffering today. We haven't even talked about the spiritual suffering of bearing our sins. And so we remember and we thank you.
in Christ's name.